This impactful conversation is brought to you by Say Things Better, a method of intentional communication developed by Lila Smith. I met Lila on LinkedIn and we immediately connected due to her open heart and wisdom. She helps entrepreneurs and thought leaders to make impactful choices for their communication. The Say Things Better messaging framework is the way she managed to build her own following of over 25,000 fans. Follow Say Things Better on LinkedIn and connect to Lila through her website at saythingsbetter.com. Welcome to Impact by Choice podcast with your host, Andrada Anizzi. I am in a tough period of my life where I feel kind of lost, but precisely for this, today I invited in the show someone that I'm sure that is not going to only be able to help me, but um, for some reason I have a hunch that she will be able to help a lot of you listening to this show. So please let me welcome Christine Sherry, the author of UMAP and Career Consultant. Welcome, Christine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Andrada. I'm very excited to talk to you. I think you're awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for the compliment. So are you. I mean, I'm really happy that you've actually brightened my day uh, before we, you know, before as we spoke, you just literally brightened my day because of your simple way of being. Um, and before anything else, please introduce yourself for the audience, for people that never got a chance to, to know you. Sure. So I'm a career consultant, which means I help people figure out their career path. And I used to do a lot of one-on-one coaching. I don't do that as much anymore. I still do, but more selectively. I've decided to help more people. So I wrote the book UMAP, so people who can't afford a career coach can DIY their career with the book. And I also created a career profile so that people can go through the profile to figure themselves out. And I created certification programs. So I certify people all over the world um, to become UMAP career coaches so that they can coach people and help them figure out their four pillars of career satisfaction. And I really applied what I did to fix my own broken career. I decided to self-diagnose and figure out what was wrong. Why was I so unhappy? And when I figured it out, I started doing it with other people. Mm, that's interesting. And I actually have a friend that is uh, certified, uh, UMAP certified, uh, Lori Knutson. She's, she's oh, I love Lori. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to ask you, where did this start? You said that you were lost for a long time and you self-diagnosed, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. Tell us, please, the story behind the story. What happened? So I knew when I was younger that I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be a doctor. And I was so caught up in that that I even had license plates for my car made that said MD to B. (laughs) Because I was, yeah, I was in a pre-med program and finished that program. And then I did uh, my degree in neuroscience. And I met calculus and I couldn't do calculus. I didn't have the foundation that I needed. Um, 
I couldn't understand the professor, so I dropped it, and I took it in the summer session, and he was teaching the summer session, and I couldn't understand his accent, and he was really impatient for people who asked questions. Mm -hmm. And I was not as persistent and resilient at that age that I am now, so I gave up. And then I had to find a job, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, and my identity had been really caught up that I was going to be a doctor. I told everyone I was going to be a doctor. And when that didn't work out, I, I had no plan for my life. And so I just sort of wandered around from job to job and thought, well, I might as well figure something out. And so I got a job in a university working in an executive MBA program, watching all these successful executives going through their career path, knowing exactly where they were going. And it just made me feel worse. Right. I ended up in IT. I ended up working in operations. I was just kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, going everywhere. But what I didn't realize at the time is that working in state government, nonprofit, operations, business intelligence, <laughs> in programming, in learning and development, all of those experiences prepared me for the calling I have now, which is helping people in their careers. I've worked in so many different in industries and different types of companies. Like I said, I've worked in for-profit, non-profit, state government, online retail, and then all different jobs. It really equipped me to understand the world of work a lot more than if I had followed just one job. True. And so at the time I felt lost. I didn't realize I was actually being equipped for my higher purpose. Right. I can, I can very much relate to that because all my jobs were different than the previous one. And at some point I came to the exact same conclusion as yourself that each experience brings something to a greater picture in the end. So, um, and, and from there you've got to, uh, how, how did you manage to self-diagnose? I mean, I know that it's easier to coach other people and to see what they were doing wrong, but how did you manage to do that on your own self? Well, there was two things. The first thing is I started taking a lot of assessments to increase my self-awareness. So learning about my personality, learning about the natural talents that I had, learning about my work preferences and the types of environments that I liked to be in. And I really started to be able to hone those things in and have better career fit, but something was still wrong. And it wasn't until I added in mentorship and people started mentoring me. And then they started telling me their stories that I started to learn about values and how our values or what's most important to us really affect our life decisions, including our career. And so I had most of the pieces in place. I learned that my strengths had to align to my work. I learned that I had to use skills that I was good at and enjoy using and that my personality had to fit with my work. But what I didn't have in place was the values piece. And once that fell into place, that gave me everything I needed. And I looked at all of that information about myself and pinpointed where, like what was breaking down? What was I not happy about? And then I decided that for me, entrepreneurship was what checked all the boxes for me. And 
And that work had to make a difference in other people's lives because that's my number two value. I didn't see how my work was making a difference in anyone's lives up to that. So not entrepreneurship's not for everyone. You will hear people say everyone can be an entrepreneur, but that's really not true because some people really value security and stability. Some people like routine. I have met people and coached people that have said to me, the more routine my workday is, the better. I love that. That's not, that I know, right? <laughs> but not for me for sure. <laughs> the people think that way and they're wired that way and they like that. And so that's not consistent with an entrepreneurial lifestyle, of course. So yeah, I really, I really, the values piece was so huge for me. And the funny thing is, is your values is the, the easiest access point to answering the question, who am I? Who am I? Because that's ultimately what everyone's trying to figure out. But what we do is we approach life treating ourselves like a puzzle piece, trying to jam it in everywhere. We yeah. look at these puzzles out there and, and say, can I jam myself into that? Will I fit into that? No, 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 no. You don't start with the external and will I fit in there? You start with you. Start with you. Who am I? What do I do best that other people need most? And then through that lens, you look out and see what's, what's out there. You don't start with what's out there and try and shoe your, shoehorn yourself into it. Mm, I totally agree with you on that. Um, there's something else that I, you've pointed out a very delicate aspect, and I want to go a bit deeper about it with you. Um, how would you advise someone to be 100% honest with themselves? Because we know that at some point we're wearing masks. We, we spoke about masks earlier. But unfortunately, sometimes we ourselves, when we're just talking to ourselves, we probably subconsciously put up a mask for our own self. So how would you advise someone to be 100% honest to themselves and open to actually understand um, and not to judge themselves if they don't like something about what's going on inside? One of the things I do is I ask them to flip the script. So write down all the things that you believe to be true. Um, whether they're limiting beliefs or stories that you've told yourself, or if I leave this job I'm in, I'll end up homeless or whatever the stories we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. I ask people to write them down and flip it, write the opposite. So first of all, can I be sure? Do I have proof that what I think is true? I challenge people to actually dive in and challenge their own limiting beliefs. How, how do I know this is true? Because most of the time we don't have any proof that something is going to happen true. or something that we believe is true. And then flip the script. So let me give you an example. <clears throat> Let's just say you have a 50-year-old man who lost his job and he believes that he's never going to find a job again. I'm afraid that I'm not gonna find another job. I'm gonna end up on the streets. Right. I had someone say that to me. I'm not making this up. And I said, let's write the opposite. Um, first of all, I said, do you really think for the next 15 or so years of working time that you have left that no one is going to offer you a job in 15 years of job search? Like, does that seem statistically probable? And he said, well, no. 
So then I said, okay, if you didn't find another job, what's more likely that your friends and family and loved ones would help you, maybe someone even take you in, or that everyone you know and love will just watch you live on the street and not care? Which one is more likely? And he said, what's more likely that friends and family would take me in, not that I would live, you know, in a dumpster in the alley in Uptown Charlotte. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I really challenge people to actually write down the opposite of what they're believing and then try and repeat those things, creating reinforcing messages. Whether you have to put sticky notes in your, on your mirror, I am enough, I am smart enough, I, can, I am resourceful to get what I need. If I don't know the answer, I can find it versus I'll be lost, I won't know what to do, I'll be over my head. Flip the script. And which one is more likely to be true? People just don't really entertain the other side of the coin. They just entertain the negative side that their limbic system is, is telling them so that they stay afraid and safe, safe. That's the biggest joke out there, that staying in a job that other people control is safer than you controlling your own destiny. And I'm not advocating entrepreneurship for everyone, but I've seen people safe in their job for 19 years in the same job. And then they reorg and get rid of that person. And now the person hasn't been growing their skills for 19 years and they've atrophied. And now they really are struggling to find another job. Yeah. Because they can, they cannot keep up with, with um, the trending, um, solutions, right? Absolutely. So anytime other people are in control of your life, that's always an unsafer option. It's an, Job security is such an oxymoron. <laughs> oh my God, I so agree with you. Yeah, for sure. For sure it is. I mean, I know for a fact, I just dropped mine <laughs> last year in May, uh, in May. I mean, I worked in corporate for 12 years and one day I just said it's no longer for me and I just dropped it. And to my surprise, until this day, I'm still alive. The universe still provides in one way or another. But yeah, you know how, how we have all these times, downsides, so to say. Um, you mentioned at some point that you offer coaching right now, but more exclusively what's one criteria that you use to pick your your client so to say well usually when I do coach people it's because they're asking for me specifically so if they're open to working with another UMAP coach I'll refer them to someone else but if they really 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 want to work with me I will work with them so the clients I have right now um, maybe heard me on Wharton business radio and they're like, I want to work with you specifically. Mm -hmm. So if, if they're just looking to go through the UMAP process, there's <clears throat> by the end of next month, there'll be 40 people certified that I can refer people to. Mm -hmm. And awesome. Congrats yeah, there's another class starting in May. So someone in, in the, is getting uh, certified in Germany. We've got people in Dubai and Canada, all over the U S there are people in Australia who are interested. It's going to be worldwide. It's pretty crazy. Brilliant. It already is. Sorry? It already is worldwide, technically. Awesome. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. I mean, 
in the beginning, I only saw that it was about the book, you know, that I continuously saw on, on LinkedIn and other social media platforms. But now that I'm learning about the coaching program, program behind it, I want to learn more. For, for how long does it last, you know, the course? So the certification program, it's yeah. an eight-week program. It's once a week for two hours. So I have one after this interview. Carrie Twig is actually in that class too. Awesome. <laughs> She's getting certified Mondays. Uh, so yeah, it's two hours a week for eight weeks. And I teach people how to coach people on those four pillars of career satisfaction. I worked with about 2,000 people hmm. from 2007 on, um, helping them with their careers informally. Mm-hmm. And I took notes and I started to hear the same types of stories. The stories were different, but what was wrong with people was the same. Like I feel underwater at work or I'm really not challenged at work or I cry, I'm breaking out in hives, like the, the medical challenges people would have, their health consequences from the stress. Right. Um, or people would say, I'm just bored or disinterested. I would listen to the language people would use to describe their career dissatisfaction. And it was just amazing how it was always connected to those four things that, that I talk about, those four pillars. But you know, this is so much more than career. This is so much more than career. We're talking about people walking through life, living with themselves as a stranger. They don't know themselves. People don't know who they are. I do this exercise in workshops. I'll say, <clears throat> tell me a word you think of when you hear Coca-Cola. Or tell me... A, a famous clothing brand or a famous brand of shoe and what's their slogan. And people will say things like happiness when they hear Coca-Cola or I like to teach the world to sing or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, tell me something when you think of your brand, what's the number one thing that comes to mind? And it's quiet. Like no one says anything. And then some brave soul a minute later will say innovative or something like that. It's like we, we store all this information in our heads about companies that mean nothing to us. They're, they're sodas, their shoes, like who cares? But we don't know who we are and, and what our reputation and brand is in the world. It's really kind of interesting. So this is not just about careers. It's about having this self-awareness that allows you authentically to come into the light instead of hiding behind the shadows of who you think you're supposed to be. I like that. That's brilliant. I, I like the phrasing of it, you know, coming into the, into the light instead of hiding behind the shadows. Um, it's, it's really nice. So from what I see, everything that you wrote in this, in this book and everything that you base your coaching on is the power of choice. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. This is 100% about intentionality. There you go. Uh, if, if you just go through life if you, you will coast and float through life and what will happen is other people will make your choices or other people will make choices that force you to make a choice within their options. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so a company does a, a reorganization and they stick you into a role because you don't know how to speak up and say, here are the three things I do best. And if you position me this way, this is the value you'll receive. Because we can't say that. 
And so we go into the new role and we hate it and then we're miserable and then we have, here we are finding a job search. Instead of being able to say, hey, you're doing a reorganization, here's, here's what I really do best. And if you put me in a role that does this, you're gonna get the most out of me, you're gonna maximize my performance, it's gonna impact the company's bottom line. How impressive is that? So it really is about, do you proactively make choices and shape your own experience in your personal life as well as your career, or are you simply reacting to every situation you're in? Hmm. Okay, and how can we combat that reacting instead of, I mean, what, what would we do differently to avoid simply reacting? Well, first of all, you have to even realize that you have a choice. I think, I think a lot of people don't realize they have a choice. They just, just react like a Venus flytrap plant. When you touch it, it, it closes and eats the fly that's on it. It's like it, it, it doesn't hunt for what it wants because it's not able to. It's not capable. It's only been designed to be able to react to a stimulus. Well, our prefrontal cortex of our brain is so much more sophisticated than animals and plants and we have the ability to be strategic to be creative and so we have to tap into those things if we just go through life on autopilot we will be reactive so how do we harness our strategic ability our creative abilities our problem solving abilities is by actually flexing those muscles and practicing them. Every time I'm in a situation, saying questions to myself, it always begins with our questions. So we ask ourselves, mm -hmm. saying, what is the situation here? Sizing up that situation. What would I like to see happen? And how can I make that happen? They're the simplest questions in the world, but nobody oh, asks them. Exactly. No one thinks about them. Yeah. And Do you think that the lack of, of us questioning ourselves, these two questions that you just mentioned, is it based on the fear that society tries to imprint on us? I think that's part of it, but I don't think anyone has ever taught us that we can be empowered to do that. I think we have to be shown the way because it's not intuitive. It just doesn't occur to us because one day we're five years old and then we're 45 years old and so each experience from five to 45 should teach us to grow but if we don't have mentors in our life if we are not actively being curious and seeking new information we will be very little different than the five-year-olds, quite frankly. We will have more, of ex more experiences, but if we don't have mentorship and curiosity, I mean, people can learn to be resilient through their challenges, whether they ask for them or not, that's for sure. But if we don't actively pursue knowledge, it won't be much different than that five-year-old, just maybe, maybe a little more resourceful, of course. So I've had mentors in my life who have taught me to challenge my limiting thinking. I used to say things like, I can't do this because, and I believe that was true. And my mentor said to me, why do you keep creating random rules that you're living by? And I'm like, Ran random rules, what are you talking about? 
And he's like saying, I can't do this because of that. And he said, that's not a fact. It's just a rule you're making up for yourself to live by. Why are you doing that? Why are you creating these rules? And he showed me that creating rules that I believed was actually what was arbitrary. And he taught me that's called judgmental thinking. It's black, it's white, it's right, it's wrong. And couples will fight over the couch they buy because this is the good couch, no, that's a bad couch. And it's really just preference. <laughs> it's not, there is no right or wrong couch, right? So he said, what you need to do is think with evaluative thinking. And those are questions. Instead of saying, oh, I can't do this because of this, or I'm not good enough because of that, you ask yourself the question, how could I add value here? How could I make an impact here? How questions create an action plan? But the statements we make, I can't blank, stop our progress. It puts up a wall. But what questions, what do I want, creates possibility, and how questions create the action plan. But we don't think to do that naturally. Right. Right. But what happens if you do ask the questions, um, let's say the why questions, or no, the what questions, okay? Uh, so you're, <clears throat> sorry, so you're asking what, how, what can I do to add value to this, right? Mm -hmm. But what if you cannot answer that yourself? How do That's you where self-awareness comes in. That's where the self-awareness comes in. Green Peak Partners did a study and looked at people who were successful. Mm -hmm. And there was one commonality across all of them. They are highly self-aware. They know what their gifts are. They know what they're good at. They know their weaknesses. They know themselves. They can describe the value that they can bring. And that takes introspection, which I know you're a big proponent of. Mm -hmm. It takes introspection. And you can ask other people. I mean, how many people do you know receive a compliment and they bat it down? Oh, you're so good at this. Oh, no, I'm not. No, no, so are you. Uh, we need to own our unique abilities and our talents. It's not boastful. It's not being not humble. It's, it's it, my jacket is white that I'm wearing. That's just a fact. And I'm also a very strategic thinker. It's not bragging to say that. That's how my brain works. It's a descriptor of me. And so people need to stop batting down the compliments that people give them and start owning the talent they have and their capabilities and not feel like there's something wrong with acknowledging what we're good at. It's not boastful. It's just being able to use a, it's they're the tools you have in your toolkit and owning that you have those tools and using those tools it's it's very practical you're right but unfortunately society teaches us to act otherwise right they're teaching us to just keep everything to ourselves um most probably not to share the knowledge that we know that we gather so that we won't hurt anyone else in quotes you know but in fact, we're, that's the easiest way for us to be controlled, right? Yeah, it's, it's, funny. it's funny because we, we will own certain types of skills. Right. So for example, 
so you you're in a parking lot and somebody blows a tire and someone can walk up and say, Oh, I can, I can fix that for you. I know how to change a tire. Oh my gosh. You're bragging saying, you know how to change a tire. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like nobody would think that, but yeah. because our strengths, our natural abilities, those are the ones that we feel uh, it's, it's not humble to tell people we have those. It's almost like if it's a skill that we learn, we're okay saying we know how to do that. I know how to play the guitar. I know how to change a flat, whatever. But I can't say to you, I'm really good at looking at a situation and figuring out the best solution. And that's a natural talent of mine. But I can't tell you that because that's bragging. It's ridiculous. Mm. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I have a feeling that all this interview will, will change a few perspectives of mine. I mean, I, I certainly I'm going to listen to it many times. <laughs> um, I like your, your thought process and I'm, I'm really happy that you chose, you know, to be with us today. So tell us a bit about, you mentioned at some point, um, a comparison between five-year-old and 45-year-old. Is there any, any part of your inner child still left in there? And how do you let it speak? Do you let it play? That's another, very, uh, another topic that I'm very f- fond of. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's actually a psychological, psychological concept called the free child. Mm. And a healthy, authentic adult should come from an adult place where they are reasonable and rational and all of those things. But there's an element of something called free child that they tap into. And that is in an appropriate context, they allow themselves to be playful. And that's making noises like woohoo when you're excited about something or clapping your hands because you're just so excited for a friend's good news. It's actually healthy, emotionally healthy to tap into that free child. But when I went into the corporate world, I worked in IT for a long time. And so I worked with a lot of introverted men who were not emotionally demonstrative. And it really killed my free child. No offense to to IT guys, but (laughs) it really killed my free child. Even though a lot of IT guys are playful in their, when they're with themselves. But I mean, we had a lot of older people in the leadership. And so when we'd be in meetings, everyone was very serious. And I felt like an imposter. I felt like I was this little child sitting at the table, um, gleeful and giddy inside. Someone would say something and I'd want to make a, a joke uh, in response because I have this kind of witty retort thing that I do <clears throat> to, to make people laugh. And I had to really suppress that in the corporate world because it's not appropriate. And I actually re- received feedback from a manager that I was too enthusiastic. Oh my God. Isn't that a pity? Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah. But that's my, my free child. So for years I squashed down this playful person that I was trying to be serious all the time so I could be taken serious as an adult and I could get promoted. But then I come to find out like 86% of executives 
say that a sense of humor is important for promotion. I'm like, you're confusing me. Should I be funny or should I not be funny? Um, but so then I just decided, you know, I'm just going to be who I am. And whoever is drawn to me and wherever I am successful, that's, I, I decided at one point that being authentic was more important to me than playing these arbitrary rules that people were creating about how I should behave and how everyone should be these robots in the corporate world. And it was so freeing. And I started to not care what people thought about me. I am who I am. And that's more fun than trying to be you. <laughs> For sure. We all know how hard it is to grow, right? Especially if we are in the first month or years of our journey of our business startup or we're coaching or we're writing and we want to spread the word about us. We all know that is pretty difficult to get the word out there, but that's exactly where I come in. I want to host an ad about your business into my podcast, Impact by Choice. So look me up on LinkedIn, Andrada Anite. I would love to work with you further on, and I would love to help you boost the visibility of your brand. Get ready for the free global app that works for you. WorkApp is set to revolutionize the way people connect in their personal and professional lives. Finally, there's a one-stop shop to help you post jobs or gain employment. Would you like your very own digital shop without any fees or charges? A global messaging service, and you can also post all types of events and courses, and you can buy, sell, or rent any items you wish. WorkApp is a global platform that helps you find what you need, when you need it, without any costs or delays. So, sign up for this exciting new service today. WorkApp works for you. And when, when was that point? You said there was a point when you decided to be yourself. When was that point? What, what triggered your decision to want to be yourself? So I think that when I started managing this team of 31 people, it was the most direct reports I'd ever had. And I decided to just, I'm just going to be myself with these people. I had moved out of IT and they came from all different walks of life. And they would come in my office and stand and talk to me and we'd laugh. And people would tell me, I'd get feedback from people. Mm -hmm. I feel so good starting my day with you. You're so funny. It feels good to, to laugh with you. And I realized that being who I was was the therapy that maybe that person needed that day. And I couldn't help them when I was living behind a mask right. because I was like a robot. But once I started to be who I was, I found purpose in the interactions with other people because it ministered to them or it, it helped them. And, I, and that was when I had the realization that I could truly help other people because I was the person that they needed that day. Right. And, and I could only do that through authentic presentation of myself. That's for sure. I mean, it's, it really is. I, I said it before, but I need to say this again, that 
you know, some leaders, so-called leaders, just impose these rules for everyone to be serious and don't laugh that loud or keep the joke to yourself or mind your vocabulary or something like that, you know? It's a pity because at some certain points in during the day, maybe someone saying a stupid joke or laughing really loud can can adjust the entire atmosphere, you know, in in a workspace. So if you were to you said that you you worked with executives, right? Yeah. So what was or what is one of the greatest advice, piece of advice that you can give an executive in order to allow their people to be themselves? So people tend to be hierarchical, right? So anytime they get around someone who is higher, higher up, I have very flat thinking, but someone who's higher than them, they immediately not everyone, but they start to feel like this person's more important than me. They're more accomplished than me. They're more successful. And so that creates this inability for them to feel comfortable mm. because they have to impress the person. I remember this woman saying, I'm always afraid I'm going to run into the president of our company in the elevator and not know what to say. Just say hello. Yeah, that's what I said. I'm like, hello is a good start. <laughs> She said, I'm afraid I'm going to make a fool of myself. So the advice I would give to the executives is really remember to lead with your heart. Lead with your heart. Because when you lead with your heart with people, that's what opens the door. Uh, and so what is, it's going to look different for every person. Maybe it's saying, I really appreciate the contributions that you make here and here's specifically why here's one thing I admire about you lead with your heart with people and they will respond that that's true and I can I can prove that with uh with an example during my my career I um my corporate career I took part in some system upgrades I liked to you know I was I'm very curious myself, so I just couldn't be on just on my slice, so to say, you know, on <laughs> my square. So I had to look out outside and just grab some other opportunities. So in this way, I just, you know, made my managers involve myself into system implementation and upgrades and user testing. And I was in that position where I wasn't necessarily afraid but I would, you know, be reserved if I met the leader, you know, the higher leader of the department. Until one day when this leader of the department sent me an email, a personal email saying that you are a star. Because of you, this happened. And I was like, oh my God, you know? And I actually realized that leaders had a heart. So ever since, you know, everything, all the myths that that leaders or CEOs or whatever, uh, people highly positioned are just untouchable, just destroyed. In that very instant, all that idea destroyed for me. And starting then, I, I began to treat everybody absolutely the same. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not afraid to go to a CEO to talk to them, as I'm not afraid to go to, a, I don't know, a janitor or, or whatever, you know? But... It, at the same time, I think that it comes to a lot of respect towards the people that you meet, 
you know, and being able to treat them like that is about, first of all, self-respect. And from that just goes out more and more respect to the other people. I 100% agree with that. And what you said that's so key is this, it starts with self-respect. You, I, I don't believe that people have different levels of value. Um, does a CEO of a company have more of an impact than one call center associate? I mean, I'm not unrealistic, of course. Like, of course that person has a set of skills that could potentially move the company financially further than one person. But I'm talking about value as human beings. Right. We are all equal in value as human beings. And... I was the same way. I would approach executives in the elevator or the hallway and talk to them just like any other person who wet the bed when they were two years old. I mean, we've, we have this common experience as human beings, you know? Yeah, but still we're some kind of close-minded to see that we breathe the same air at the end of the day, you know? Mm-hmm. And even, maybe even CEOs can be afraid of something. I don't know, there can be afraid of the dark, for instance, or how many times did we see, you know, mountains of people like two meters high and, you know, basketball players or whatever, who are very sensitive at the same time, you know, and they also have their, their, their frightens, their, their reasons to just stand back at some point, regardless of how, uh, how famous they are or, you know, how much influence they have, right? And not only do they have fears like everyone else, it's a lot lonelier at the top. Who do they tell? So in fact, a lot of times they have to wear an even thicker, more permanent mask than the rest of us do because they have to know it all. They have to have it all together to be at that level. So their pressure is even more so. So imagine when you approach a person like that authentically and you treat them just like another person, how refreshing that probably is for them to be able to have that real human connection where people aren't just kissing their butt Mm. or treating them like they're like they're nervous to be around them. That can't feel good for someone. We all fundamentally want to feel belonging and connection with other people. It's a foundational human need to feel like we belong and can connect. So I do believe when we approach people even higher than us in an authentic way, trying to make a connection, that that probably feels very nice for them. And it's a refreshing change for them. Yeah, for sure. And that gives them some security that, you know, they can actually talk to you as their own selves and they can leave that mask aside for a second, right? Yeah. I I saw that myself. I witnessed that myself in, in various other examples, not just the one that I gave you. Yeah, there's, there's huge imposter syndrome going on in leaders because they keep rising uh, up and up and up to these positions that they don't believe that they're probably even qualified for. And so that's why you get a lot of the uh, people who won't admit that they don't know everything and because they, they don't feel comfortable being vulnerable because they have those insecurities. Yeah, but on, on the flip side, admitting these things will only, you know, create a stronger circle around you, right? With people that will be willing to actually fill those blanks for you. 
Yeah, I mean, think of mothers. Mothers are a perfect example. We have to work and nurture and take care of children and keep the house together and keep on top of all of the logistics of our kids and all the school things they have. It's, we have to juggle all of these balls. And women don't feel that they can admit that they're dropping those balls. Like, I'm struggling and I can't admit that. And women don't help each other in that area. They, oh, look at her, has her kid out at 10 o'clock at night or whatever we're judging that mother for. How did she let her daughter stand by that thing where, where they were able to snatch her? Like whenever anything happens in society, the first thing we do is jump all over that parent. So we can't admit that we're not perfect parents, perfect employees, perfect at juggling all these balls. And everyone suffers in silence that they, and they feel like they're failing at life. It's just absurd. It's absurd. We have to be able to, to be able to grow and get help. We have to admit we're struggling. And I've heard so many stories from people. They make a mistake at work. They hide it. They don't know what they're doing. They hide it because they're afraid to admit they don't know things. They're afraid to admit mistakes. But people admire when people will come and say, I'm not sure how to do this. Here's what I've tried so far. It's not working. I need help. People admire people who who can humble themselves and ask for help. It's not, oh my gosh, I can't believe they asked for help. (laughs) Well, it depends on the people. Another proven thing, seriously. I mean, it depends if you're going to a colleague that it, you can actually interact with or to your manager who is a micromanager, in quotes. You know, a right. person that just looks down on you. But generally speaking... Those are insecurities too, right? Sorry? Those managers who are looking down on you, those people are suffering from insecurity as well. Oh my God. Yeah, for sure. Secure people don't look down their nose at people and, and call people out. They, they don't when they're secure. I read a statistic years ago that said 75% of people managers do not feel qualified for their jobs. 75%. That's alarming. (laughs) Yeah. It's not easy to manage people. And Gallup has a lot of data on that too. When you look at people's natural talents, only one in 10 people are naturally wired to, go- to be good people leaders. One in 10, which means nine in 10 are not good at it naturally. So here's what happens. We have these individual contributors that are superstars at their job and we promote them into managers, which is a completely different skill set. 90% of the time, Gallup says it's the wrong hire. Yep. And what do we do? We fake it till we make it. We create wreckage and carnage of all the people reporting to us. And it, it's just a disaster. Yeah, It's an absolute disaster. We're not equipping people to be able to lead. That's actually my next book. <laughs> oh, I can wait for that. <laughs> that's that's going to touch a very, very soft point. You know, very interesting point for me because I've been one of the people looked down on from a wannabe manager who right now is on a higher scale even, you know, but the people's skills are still missing. So yeah, I really want to read that. When, when do you plan, by the way, when do you plan to, to release it, to have it out? (sighs) 
That's a great question. I, it's supposed to be this year, but I don't know if that's going to happen because UMAP in its current form and the certification programs are blowing up. And so the company is growing really fast. So that really needs a lot of my attention on innovation on the new versions of reports. And so I'm not sure. I mean, it would not be, it would definitely be 2020 if it's not this year for sure. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a UMAP for managers essentially to help uh, identify um, a profile for people who are wired to be managers. And if they're not, how do we develop those skills? and bring people on board and have them lead with dignity and treat people with dignity. Cause here's what happens, right? You get the manager, they hire a person, they give feedback that's just not well given or it's subjective. We give a lot of subjective feedback mm -hmm. for our preference, not fact-based. And then we don't give feedback well. So the person, we kind of crush them in the process. Then there's this, resentment that builds up the relationship breaks down it becomes a comfortable for us to be at work together and so the manager works the person out of the organization or the person quits and everyone has hard feelings i mean that it just it's what like lather rinse repeat it happens in companies all over the world yeah and it's it's um it's really not rocket science to be able to have a respectful first of all to get the right people in the right roles that's the first part and then when things aren't going well to have a respectful conversation where people aren't wounded you know out of that because you are really showing that you have the person's best interest at heart i've received tough feedback from people but i knew they cared about me and so i wasn't defensive because I'm not feeling like I have to protect myself against you because I know your motives are to help me be better. Mm, and that's what's that's something. That's something that many people just overlook. I mean, they don't understand the fact that you, someone else is just trying to help. They just take it to personal. Yeah. Right? And even people who have good intentions deliver it in a way that it's not well received. Here's something very interesting. If you do a brain scan of people, who are having an intellectual threat. So I'm giving you feedback about your performance that's not meeting expectations. Mm -hmm. You have the same reaction in your brain as if I'm physically threatening you. So if I'm being chased by a, a dog that's ready to maul me, or if I'm saying this report that you created is not up to my standard. <laughs> You have the same fight or flight reaction as if you're being physically attacked from an intellectual threat, which is why it's so difficult for people to have conversations about religion or politics or any of those things. Because if I have an intellectual um, difference of opinion than you do, I'm threatened by that. And so it degrades into this horrible argument where people start calling each other names. Because everyone tries to impose their truth, right? and they yeah. can't accept the truth of the other. Yeah, there's, I mean, I could go down a psychology rabbit hole with you, but there's a really interesting model of critical thinking skills. And it goes from level one to five. And level five, most people never reach it. But when you get to level five critical thinking skill, you are able to completely separate your identity from your beliefs and opinions, so that when your beliefs or opinions are attacked, your identity stays intact and it doesn't uh, offend you or get you upset. It's something I've been actively working at so that when people 
um, don't, and, and I've been testing this out a lot. I can talk about politics all day long with anyone and it really doesn't bother me. I don't, it doesn't bother me when people are on opposite ends of the political spectrum and a lot of people, they just, they can't get to that place. It really doesn't bother me. Right. Right. What about talking about discrimination? What would be, you know, the greatest threat, not threat, let's say the greatest challenge for you to face when it comes to discrimination? How would you put a stop, for instance, to a discussion on this topic? So that's a, a great question. I've, it's something I've experienced a lot in my own life because I am an indigenous woman. So I'm a, what, what we call Haudenosaunee, which people call Iroquois. It, it, the colonial settlers in the United States called us Iroquois, but that's not what we call ourselves. So I'm specifically a Mohawk woman. Mm-hmm. And being a Mohawk, there's a lot of baggage when you tell people you're a Native American person. Um, they start to go to reservations, poverty, mm-hmm. alcoholism, suicide rates, and all of the things that plague my people. Just negative. And, yeah. And so people don't know that I am an indigenous person um, because the Mohawks are the lightest skinned of the Native American people. Mm-hmm. And so I've heard some really, really bad things said to me, <laughs> not realizing that, that I was. And so um, that, that's been an interesting thing of how I had to make a decision growing up to accept that there are systemic institutions in place that allow discrimination to happen. And I have to educate each person that I come into contact with. It's really education because if, if we're ever going to get rid of discrimination that comes through education, people have to broaden their network of people that they interact with and they have to read more and they have to travel around outside of their, (laughs) their neighborhood that they live in. If you don't expose yourself to other people, um, those things that are taught are going to persist. I was fortunate and then I was never taught um, discriminatory things as a child. I learned these things as an adult and it blew my mind that people actually held the beliefs that they had mm-hmm. around. But, you know, I go to a multicultural church. My pastor is black and the congregation is black, white, Latino, Asian. It's, and so we're forced to not be comfortable, but to the point where now it is comfortable. And if I went to a church where everyone looked like me, that would be uncomfortable mm-hmm. because I've gotten to the point where lack of diversity feels weird to me. But I wasn't always that way, even though I wasn't taught to be sexist, racist, whatever. Even though I wasn't taught those things, we are wired for sameness. Sameness is comfortable. And so when we're around things that are different, we become uncomfortable. And that isn't just people. When we're using a new technology we haven't used before, we get frustrated and uncomfortable. Yeah. We read books that have language that we're not familiar with. We get uncomfortable. Any differences. Um, so I think just not shaming people for, for a natural 
thing because what happens is sometimes when people will share those things, everyone mobs them. It's like, no, 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 let's, let's listen to people and help them understand another way, a better way of thinking. I think of the Liam Neeson thing that happened in the news recently. It's like, we need to talk about the discrimination that happens to people. We need to talk about it. And what happens is if anyone is even trying to be slightly honest, even if they're wrong, they get the, we get this mob mentality. And then what happens? We wear the masks again. We don't share. And I think when people are interested in truly having constructive dialogue, we need to be able to have the space to do that and not freak out and get angry and attack people and call them names, but say, Hey, I'd like to share a different perspective from you and it might be something you haven't thought of and share that perspective. Here's my perspective. I have shifted so radically in the last five years being on the global LinkedIn platform and seeing other people's perspectives and, and seeing how people really do think differently. We put other people in our story through our lens and interpret things through our very limited experience. And the only way to combat that is to being open to hearing other people's experiences. I, I have a very, very close friend, for example, <clears throat> who, uh, who is black and he, him and his wife, she's white. Mm -hmm. And they will talk about their different experiences when they're with their children. Mm -hmm. Like when, um, and, and they have, they have an adopted child. So they have a black a mixed race child and then they have a white child they adopted. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to hear the stories of how they're treated with one child versus the other child and how each parent, people have different experiences going through life and they're treated differently. And I don't think we'll ever change if we stop, like we deny that people will deny that happens. Everyone has the same opportunities. Everyone has the same. And I used to think that way. I used to think, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You make your experience in life. You don't allow people to hold you down. And, and I believed that for a long time until I started to actually listen to people. And I'm not saying you can't fight and claw and try to get ahead mm -hmm. and be that Rosa Parks that says, no, I'm not getting to the back of the bus. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that you can't do that. But that's not enough. I mean, we need to systemically work to remove the barriers that are really creating very different. And, and you know, it's interesting. Remember that flip the script thing mm -hmm. that we talked about? Mm -hmm. You can prove that's true by asking a person you're talking to, would you want to be me? Let's just say I was an, let's just say I was a Latina woman or even, even, um, let's just say I was a darker skinned indigenous person so that somebody didn't, I, people will think I'm white all the time. Mm -hmm. and so let's just say I didn't look like that. And if I said to the person, would you want to look like me? What's that reaction you have inside? Ooh, that would be bad. We have to admit those things. Yeah. They would probably say no. Hell no. I wouldn't Hell want no. Right. But we can't vilify people for, being honest is a starting point. We have to give them the opportunity to move past that or we never will because people who are attacked never will grow because we are justifying their response. See, you are a horrible person. 
I'm entitled to feel this way. Look how you're attacking me. You are terrible. Mm, I could go on all day. I shouldn't keep going on about that. <laughs> no, but that's, that's a very interesting topic because we went into diversity as well and we went into discrimi discrimination. And in, you know, you covered a lot of topics in one answer. So, I mean, I could go for at least more than two hours with you on this topic as well just to listen to you, how, how you recount your stories, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've, I talk to my sons about this. I have two daughters and two sons mm -hmm. and I will say to my sons, you know, you need to listen to women when they talk about their experience going through life because it can be easy to dismiss them as they're all just whining and they're complaining. But I said to them, I want you to know I've been sexually harassed in the workplace. I've been grabbed You know, it's, and I, and they, they just kind of are taken aback because they didn't expect that I would say that. And I will tell them 100% of women have been sexually harassed. 100% of women who are born and live in this world are sexually harassed. 100%. Not all of them are physically assaulted, but 100% of women are sexually harassed. That's alarming. And I've told myself that. Yeah, it is. Um, I know that um i touched this subject with another guest in another episode and then in the comments when i posted the snippet on linkedin someone said okay but why should we just teach boys and men how to listen to women and to you know respect women why not just teach everyone women alike i would like to you know kind of respond to that and ask you what is the flip side what are you teaching your girls in in regards to men how to respect men or how to treat men so i i do believe education is always two-sided i mean it has to be but interestingly there's this guy who does these workshops in colleges and i forget his name but he will go in so let me give you an example when the police tell women you need to be more socially aware mm -hmm. right those when women are getting attacked and raped in parks, you need to be, check out your surroundings and be more socially aware. What's interesting about that, this guy who does these workshops, he will go in and he will start with the men in the room, you know, 18, 19, 21 year old boys. <clears throat> He'll say, what do you do every day to make sure you're not sexually assaulted? And the first thing they do is furrow their eyebrows <laughs> and look around the room because the question confuses them. Right. And he's got a whiteboard and he says, tell me all the things that you do every day to ensure you're not sexually assaulted. And he repeats the question and nobody says anything. Then he says to the women, what do you do every day to ensure you're not sexually assaulted? And 30 hands fly up and they say, I always walk with my keys in my fingers so I could use it as a weapon. I make sure that I never park near alleyways. I always walk home from work with a partner. I carry pepper spray. I cross to the other side of the street if there's a man on the other side of the street and I will cross over to the other side of the street. I lock my doors when I drive my car and the whiteboard is filled where he has to start writing along the sides. And so that's, that's my point of this is saying things like, well, you need to, we need to teach women to be more socially aware we are, <laughs> we, 
we already are doing all of these things, but you don't know that because you're not living our experience to know that we do this. And we're not even knowing that we're doing this. A lot of times it's so ingrained in us. Yeah, but we as women actually discuss with each other things that men just may overlook. Well, most of the times, let's say that they do overlook speaking about things like that because that denigrates their power, right? Yeah. As a general. But I will also add that I don't, not to get political, but I don't like where I see our culture, culture going where we're vilifying men. I don't think that anytime you're pushing down one group, to try and elevate another, I don't think that's an effective strategy. So sure. I'm not a big fan of the term mansplaining, for example. And every time I see people use that on Twitter, it just makes me cringe because it closes the door to constructive conversation. Anytime we're resulting to playground retorts, I just don't feel like we're, people are gonna listen to us. And so if we're going to be taken seriously, we have to approach things. And I understand people do it because they're frustrated. They're frustrated that people are patronizing them. I get that. But I just think we're shutting the door to effective dialogue when we resort to trying to vilify the group of people that we perceive are whatever they're doing, right? Right. Do you think that this, sorry. Do you think that this could change if men allow themselves to be a bit more vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know so many men who are told, um, stop crying like, as soon as they start crying, but their daughter cries. They'll tell you this, they parent sons and daughters. And when their daughter, when their son cries, quit crying, pull yourself together, man up, boys yeah. don't cry. And then when the girl cries, oh, they pick up their daughter and, right. and hug them. And they, men will be the first to admit, but it's, hundreds and hundreds of years of socialization that's not going to change overnight but i think we're making progress yeah i've seen some men like that i mean they're they're starting to open up fortunately and i've been fortunate enough fortunate enough to interview a men's coach so to say who actually um encourages men to open up and be vulnerable mm -hmm. and that was was my my ever first interview with someone with Ivan Hunt, I don't know if you're not connected with him, you maybe you want to look him up. I will. Yeah. So I'm really grateful to see that, you know, there's men that actually empower men to respect women and to let their feelings show, you know, to be vulnerable, to make themselves understood. I think that will indeed will, will bring a huge impact on this world. Absolutely. And we're not asking men to not be men. We're not asking men to become women, but everyone has feelings and they can express those feelings in a way that's healthy and still be men. Precisely. And that's one of the hidden things in my book. <laughs> just for you to know. I mean, <laughs> Maybe just a spoiler alert, but you know, that's one of the hidden characters in the book that, you know, men need to be vulnerable. So, yeah so getting to to the end of this episode thank you very much for being with us Kristen. it's been a huge pleasure talking to you seriously you just you know relieved all all the tension that i had in me um i want to ask you if someone wants to come to you for coaching right you said that 
Mm -hmm. you receive requests, right? And you interact with people who actually reach out to you. Where can they find you? So um, probably the best place to email me is Kristin, K-R-I-S-T-I-N at myumap.com, M-Y-Y-O-U-M-A-P. Or they can catch me on LinkedIn. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. There's another, a few other Kristen Sherry's, but I'm the one in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm, okay. It's, it's good that you mentioned it. Um, is there a website where they can find you or? Myumap.com. Okay. And I'm going to leave all the details in, in the episode description uh, as along with the link to your book, right? So whoever wants to buy it so that they can jump precisely to it. Once again, thank you very much for being with us today, Kristen. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure having you and I wish you an amazing day ahead and a, an abundant life. Thank you so much, Andrada. I can't wait to read your book. Oh, I can't wait to learn your feedback. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for reaching the end of this episode. I wish you an amazing day ahead. And please, don't forget, smile at life. And life will smile right back at you. <laughs>